Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series. Hello, and welcome to Codish. My name is Chris Castle, and I'm a developer advocate at Heroku and Salesforce. Today, we've got super interesting topic that's um, probably relevant to a lot of you in the developer community. The quote kind of like funny title <laughs> that our guest suggested was virtual conferences that don't suck for dummies. Um, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Um, we've got Carter Rabasa. He uh, has been a long time the lead organizer for Cascadia JS and just put on Cascadia JS this year in 2020 at the beginning of September. So we're going to talk about some of what happens behind the scenes at a virtual conference. It's a new thing for this the, the 2020s, learning to kind of change in-person conferences to virtual ones, but still make them exciting and fun and engaging and valuable to attendees. Let's get a little bit of introductions from our guests. Carter, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into Cascadia JS? I guess, um, you know, for folks who don't know me, I'm a developer who lives in Seattle. And I'm the lead organizer for Cascadia JS, uh, which we started uh, back up in 2012. Um, when I'm not working on Cascadia JS, um, I'm working on a little startup called Fizzbuzz uh, that helps developers get connected to better jobs. Yeah, that's cool. You you've had a lot of uh, developer enablement, maybe focus in your in your life, right? You came from developer relations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. So, um, I mean, I'm a, so I'm, I'm one of those you know gray beard developers. You know, I've been writing code since before the internet actually existed, right? <laughs> so, so um, yeah, just started out my career as a web developer, uh, went to business school, had one of those kind of quarter life crises, and mm -hmm. I wasn't sure I wanted to program anymore. So I went to business school. And after business school, I got a job at Microsoft. So working at Microsoft is what brought me out to the West Coast and to the Pacific Northwest. And the job that I got was uh, in marketing, but it was in developer marketing. Um, so I, was, I did developer marketing um, for Microsoft for a few years, uh, and then I left Microsoft to join what was then a small company called Twilio uh, as one of their first developer evangelists. This was back before the average person had any idea what a developer evangelist was, yeah. and, uh, and I helped build that team at Twilio for a while. And then I ended up transitioning out of that role into product management, but being a product manager building dev tools. So you, you kind of just you hear that word developer over and over again. Like everything in my career has been sort of around, um, you know, helping and enabling and empowering developers. Um, yeah. and, uh, and that, and that kind of like leads straight into Cascadia, you know, just yeah. like building cool. something for the developer community uh, up here in the Pacific Northwest. And then my partner, partner in crime, maybe here, Julian, can you introduce yourself? Of course. Hello, Chris. And hello, Carter. My name is Julian Duque. I'm also a developer advocate here at Salesforce Eroku. And similarly to Carter, I'm also a conference organizer. I am the lead organizer of NodeConf in Colombia and JSConf in Colombia as well. Um, how did you get into those two conferences, Julian? Well, uh, first, I think the first contact I have with the developer community in Colombia was through a conference in 2011. I was invited uh, to this conference through the work I was doing with the meetups in my city. 
And then I met the main organizer of that conference. Then we became friends and we started talking about uh, that we needed to have like a more focused conference in Colombia. So we decided to do like a pivot from like a general uh, developer conference to a JavaScript specific one. And that's how in 2013, we started with JSConf Colombia. And I also know that you're a, a Node JavaScript developer, right? And you, you've you worked on some of Node.js core and, and what are some other things that you've worked on? Yes, sir. I was involved in the Node.js project since uh, 2012 until 2015 was a Node.js official contributor. But right now I'm like more focused on like the education and promotion part of the platform rather than being involved in, in coding. Okay, so let's talk about Cascadia JS. Carter, you said it started in 2012, and actually I was I was fortunate enough to, to be a, a presenter for the last, I think, the closing session at 2012 Cascadia JS. Uh, but can you tell us, yeah, a little bit about the history of Cascadia JS, like what it is, um, why you or, or maybe others started it, um, and kind of what draws you to that, to do that stuff? Yeah, Cascadia JS, I mean, honestly, Cascadia JS wouldn't exist if it wasn't for a conference called JSConf. Um, which was started by Chris Williams um, back in, I don't even, I think maybe 2009, something like that. I, I mm-hmm. attended JSConf, the, the US version um, in 2011, I believe. I, I think that's the, the one, it was the one that was in Portland. Um, and I was, I was working at Microsoft at the time. And when I was doing developer marketing for Microsoft, this is when Microsoft was sort of rebooting its Internet Explorer um, engineering team and was in, in the process of releasing IE9, which had all the HTML5 you know, goodness, mm-hmm. um, in, to, in response to what Chrome and Firefox had been doing like over the last three years. So I, I went to JSConf in Portland to represent Internet Explorer. Um, and frankly, I was kind of scared because you know, just <laughs> web developers didn't really think very highly of Internet Explorer um, for totally good reasons. Um, and I was very worried about the reception that I was going to have and how people were going to treat me and also, like, I'm just old enough that my history of going to tech conferences were, like, going to events that were very uh, sort of in, impersonal and, like, you know, like housed in giant sort of, you know, uh, convention centers with, like, lots of marketing and sales and crappy food. Like, that's kind of what I thought a tech conference was. And I went to this event that was small, intimate. Um, the people were kind. Uh, the food was amazing. The talks were technical and there was very little perceived, you know, sales or marketing that was happening. It was like this, just a community of these well-intentioned web developers that just wanted to learn and get better and meet one another. And it was just this transformative event. Like I, I came back to Seattle and I was like, my God, like this is the future of conferences. Like this is what every conference should be. And then the gears started turning because I think I don't, remember where JSConf was going to be the next year. Like it, that might've been when they were going to be in Amelia, Florida. But I started to realize like, oh man, like I don't want to have to fly all the way to Florida to have this feeling, right? I, and I don't, I don't think anybody should have to fly from Seattle or Portland all the way across the country to experience this kind of feeling, right? Um, so that's when the gears started. And it just became clear that you know, there were so many talented web developers like in the Pacific Northwest that I just wanted to take the feeling um, and the experience of JSConf and sort of bring it to where I lived and where my friends lived. So that's, that was sort of the genesis. 
And it seems like you also, I mean, you know, the Seattle area, Microsoft's been around as like a, a large tech employer, um, software developer employer for a while in the area. But in the last decade, um, like since Cascadia JS started, there's been this other other company named Amazon that <laughs> has <laughs> gotten huge. I'm sure there was probably some of like riding the wave of just like this hugely expanding um, number of developers in the community. Um, even last year, was it last year or two years ago? I think you used an Amazon facility for the in-person event back when we did these in-person conferences. Yeah, no, I think I, I think that's true, right? I mean, I think the the it's, it's not just Seattle, right? I mean, if you live in Portland, you know, there are just you know, there's been a flourishing of you know tech companies, both big and small, right? You know, big companies like Urban Airship, you know, and then you know smaller companies that you know you may or may not be familiar with, right? So it's been up and down, and you know, Vancouver, like Vancouver, like Google and Microsoft and many other companies have opened offices in Vancouver, in addition to all of the startups that have sort of flourished up there. So it's really, it's really, I mean, I guess as someone who organizes a conference for the region, like I have a lot of visibility into like all the cool things that are kind of going up and down on this area. Yeah. So I was going to ask about that. Um, Cascadia JS is a, is a little bit unique in that it's it's for this region. Can you explain a little bit more about like what that means and, and <laughs> how that applies to like the venue and where you go? I mean, Cascadia, for the, for people who are listening that don't know, it's, it's kind of like a made up term for um, these this area of the Pacific Northwest. In fact, you can Google it and there are people that kind of joke about um, seceding from the, the United <laughs> States, right? Like kind of creating a, a country of Cascadia. Um, yep. I, I'm sure the term has like historical, like, you know, origins, right? Um, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I attended a conference back in 2010 or something called Cascadia Ruby. It was the same thing, but for Ruby, it was a Ruby conference that attracted people from up and down the Pacific Northwest. So I'm, you know, my history is that of a web developer and increasingly of a JavaScript developer. So for me, when it came time to kind of come up with a name for this conference, it just Cascadia just sort of felt right. And, And actually being regional mattered to me because, you know, I live in Seattle, but like I love to visit other cities. Like I love to visit Vancouver and I love to visit Portland and I'm not alone, right? Like I think people who live in this region love, I mean, this is pre-COVID, right? <laughs> love to kind of, you know, travel up and down and visit yeah. these places. So I, I just, to me, it just felt like, yes, this is perfect. Like I didn't want to create like the Seattle JS conference, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted to create the Cascadia JS conference that would bring people from all over into one location. And, and I think your, your question also kind of alluded to the fact that we don't, we don't hold the event in the same location every year. We, we rotate locations. So the first year was Seattle, the second year was Vancouver, British Columbia, the third year was Portland and, and so on and so forth. So we've, we've moved the, around, the event around so that people don't accidentally think it's just for people in Seattle, right? It, it isn't, it's for people all up and down. It is regional, but how big it is? Like, what is the like average number of attendees for the in-person uh, version of the event? Oh yeah, sure, sure. I mean, the, the first year that Chris spoke at, you know, I think we were lucky to to get over two hundred people. I mean, it, and it probably felt like you know, like a like kind of a really large meetup or something. But you know, the the most recent in-person event uh, in twenty nineteen, um, uh, which was in Seattle, uh, I think we had maybe like five hundred and fifty people. It's either big or small, depending on your perspective. Um, for us, the event is much more than just about the talks. It's about people and people meeting each other. Um, so there's a there's kind of a maximum size that we would ever consider growing to because we we want the event to always feel 
intimate and feel like you don't get lost um, in the crowd. So you actually bring up kind of one of the, one of the things I wanted to chat about, which was one thing that I think you've always done well, or maybe you've learned how to do well with Cascadia JS is it's not all about just the event and not uh, like the, the day of the event. And it's not all about just the, the talks that happen. Um, those are a very important part and kind of like the, maybe the anchor of the conference or of the event. But at least in, in my um, observation, you seem to uh, organize a whole bunch of other events, either leading up to Cascadia JS um, or after it. At least my experience with that is it, is it makes it more, it provides more opportunities for personal interaction in a smaller environment uh, with fewer than 550 people, but you still feel attached to kind of this, this larger whole that is the Cascadia JS community. Um, was that something you learned or, or was it something that you did from the start? No, it's, it's, these are just things you learn, man. When we did Cascadia JS the first time, I mean, I think the only thing I really thought hard about doing was, um, having good talks, right? Like when I first got into putting on the conference, I think I, I put almost all my energy into like, who's speaking, because I just sort of had this naive notion that like, well, that's why people come to conferences, right? To like, listen to people speak, right? Like that's, that's sort of the obvious like answer to like, why go to a conference? All of my sort of energy went into who's speaking, um, what food are we serving? And, you know, maybe what bar will we go to after the event? Mm-hmm. And it was, it was only over years of talking to like attendees and talking to people in the community that I came to sort of understand wow, like the talks are maybe like the third most important thing that people care about. Um, Hmm. Most people who come to my conference, I mean, I don't want to make kind of a blanket statement, right? But most people who come, come for sort of network, networking and personal reasons. You know, they want to um, connect with a community, like maybe they're new to the Pacific Northwest, right? Like they moved from somewhere else and they just want to connect. They want to meet people. Um, Similar use case for like why people go to meetups, also, they want to reconnect, right? Like Cascadia has turned into almost like a reunion for people. Like yeah. there are these awesome people that you love seeing, but you only really see them once a year and it's at Cascadia. Or, you know, they're either actively jobs hunting um, or they're kind of like passively job hunting, right? They kind of know in their gut that it's time to make a change, but they don't, you know, they don't know what that would be. And they, they go to an event to put themselves in a position to just bump into people and have interesting conversations, right? I learned, I sort of learned over time that it's the people and the networking um, that really drive people to attend Cascadia. And then of course, yeah, I mean, of course you need to have talks and you need to have great speakers. Like those are all important, um, but they're not more important than sort of the human part. Hulan, would you, uh, does that resonate with you from your experience with um, NodeConf and JSConf in Colombia. Yeah, totally, totally, yeah. totally. It's a, it's the same. At the beginning, was just more uh, focus on like being able to get good content because normally all the content that was being created at the time you got access through maybe videos or Twitter, but the people in the country weren't able to have that experience to be able to attend a conference and meet the people that are creating the libraries or open source projects they love and they want to use. So when we started, we decided to start inviting certain speakers that they, that had like some sort of are renowned in the country Mm -hmm. and then opening opportunities for the local people to also share the spotlight and share those speaking spots 
with uh, the international speakers. So always trying to have like a very good mix of external and international content that we brought to Colombia and people locally. When the event was uh, growing every year, now those numbers are starting to change and we started to have like, we're more locals interested in, in, in speak. Yeah, and it seems like there are more, more and more kind of like renowned Colombian developers these days too. Exactly, so what, what happened is that the role got inverted and a lot of people from our country, from the same community, started to go to the other international events, like applying to CFPs, uh, having the confidence to be able to go to these other places and give a conference in a different language than the native one. So it was pretty amazing to see that transformation in our community. Yeah, I will. I mean, I remember I had the fortune, I was fortunate enough to be able to attend um, JSConf in Berlin, JSConf EU, like three three years ago. And it blew me away. Uh, Heroku was a sponsor of that also. I get to go as part of that. And it was like, I had that a similar experience, Carter, to like what you described where I was like, and this was just three years ago, like 2017 or something like that. Um, and I kind of knew what tech conferences were like, even like some of the more kind of community or, or niche ones, but I was still blown away by JSConf um, EU in Berlin. Um, so that like that brand, the JSConf brand or, or whatever, however they, they manage the experience or expectations, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think brand's a good word, but I mean, it's the people, right? You know, it's not like a, it's not like a, a logo or something, you know, it's like Chris Williams had a set of values that he communicated incredibly clearly to people who came to his event, right? And if you attended a Chris William event, like I did, you absorbed those values and it inspired you to sort of like bake them into your event, right? Like that's that's why technology conferences are like, it's about the people first and like not the tech. Cause you're right, I can learn how to program WebRTC by watching like a video or reading a blog post, right? But conferences are different because they bring people together to like share these kinds of like values and these kinds of ideas. And that's what makes them so uniquely inspiring. Yeah. And it is also uh, a network because pretty much all of the other different conferences that are being added to the same family are being mentored by us, the organizers of those conferences. So, for example, I'm organizer of JSConf Colombia, and I'm helping the team at JSConf Mexico to run a conference. So it's kind of like sharing those values and passing those values to other people. So we at least can guarantee that the quality of the conference is going to be according to to the brand, according to the values that uh, Chris Williams and the team like implied at the beginning. Let's switch topics a little bit. In uh, the end of February, from February like 28th to March 1st, I, as, as part of work, was, was in London, and we were sponsoring um, QCon London, um, Heroku and, and Salesforce were. And all of a sudden, we got this call from, uh, or this email actually from someone in Salesforce security, and they were like, we need to discuss whether or not you should come home right now. Um, and of course, we knew kind of like, something was happening but this was my first like real like kind of personal experience with like oh wow this is this is serious um, and so as we all know like the covid pandemic has required us to wear masks and and stay inside more and not go to physical conferences where people are pressed together waiting in line to get into a room or waiting in line for the food or yeah in an overflow like 
keynote room watching some some great speaker or something like that. And so um, a lot of us in this industry who are used to doing conferences as part of our job had to think about how do we maintain community? Like how do, how do we keep working with developers and doing the things that, that we love to do when we can't physically see them, you know, maybe once every quarter or, or every six months or whatever it is. And so a lot of uh, developer events have switched to being virtual events, um, which kind of, you think maybe, okay, that makes sense. It's easy to do. This is a technology event. It's a developer event. Of course they can do this technology like driven um, kind of technology centric video event, but it's actually <laughs> not that easy. Um, a lot of the things Carter and, and Julian spoke about, right? Like your. uh, it's not about the speakers necessarily. It's about the personal connections and the, the conversations mm-hmm. you have in the hallway or in the line waiting to, to grab a bite to eat. Carter, when, when for you was kind of like the big decision <laughs> or when did it dawn on you that like, okay, something's got to change for Cascadia JS? Well, I mean, I think, you know, January and February, you know, you're like living in denial, you know, you're like, yeah. well, you know, maybe, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. it'll, maybe it'll go away. <laughs> you know, you just, you know, you don't know what to believe, quite frankly. I mean, especially if you live in the U.S., you know, you're getting a lot of mixed signals from, you know, yeah. leaders and the media. Um, but it was, I mean, it was clear that something bad was happening. Um, it, it, look, in my case, um, you know, we had, you know, we had a venue, right? We, we had, a, we had a contract, we had a venue, um, we had, we had already begun selling tickets. So I, I think, you know, it was in that March timeframe um, where you're just like you're reading the news headlines every single morning. You know, I'm talking to my fellow organizers and I, I think it was sometime in early April where we just finally pulled the plug. And quite frankly, like we, I only felt like I could because, you know, we got our ven- the, the venue um, to sort of like shift our contract to 2021, right? So it's just, you know, for people who don't organize conferences, I mean, there's just a lot of <laughs> um, logistics uh, in, in the back that you just don't know about. Um, and a lot sure. of like contractual language and cost. And I think even most people don't realize that even just a 500 person event over one or two days, like you're planning for that almost all year, right? Like maybe you take oh. a break over the winter. <laughs> it's not something you just like pick up in the summer, no. or like yeah. June and start working on for September. No. Yeah, there's, there's the, it takes, look, um, every event's different. And, uh, and I'll be honest, there's some like l- lower quality events that are just sort of whipped together in, you know, eight weeks, right? Uh, for Cascadia, uh, me and the other uh, organizers, we start working on it about nine months um, ahead of the event, right? And that's not nine months, you know, 40 hours a week, right? But it, it, there's a bell curve. Um, it kind of starts nine months out, it ramps up, and then, it, and then the event hits, and then it kind of ramps down quickly, right? Um, but, but Chris, you know, I really wanted to be super clear, like, even separate from, you know, contracts and, you know, finances and stuff like that, like, there was a more important question of, like, should we do it? Is it the right thing to do for our community, right? Like that was the more important question because the other things you can figure out, you can figure out money and you can figure out lawyers. And the bigger question is like, you know, can we put on an event that we would be proud of? Right. Can we put on an event that um, that our community would love? Right. And those are higher order concerns that we had. And the truth is that we that I didn't I couldn't answer that question definitively. It required us to imagine a future where like software and experiences had been built that didn't exist right now. And then, so then almost from a, imagine that you're like a tech company or something or a startup, like you just have to ask yourself, do you think that you can build, you know, you have a set of requirements, like, can you build it and can you build it in time, right? 
Like that became sort of like the question of like, can we do it? Can we combine some stuff off the shelf with some stuff that we write ourselves because we are web developers? And do we believe that that will create an experience that won't exactly replicate the past in-person events, but will be really, really good. And in some, on some dimensions will be better. Um, so that was the question. And uh, I think sometime around, geez, maybe May or June, we basically decided that we could do it. And that was when we sort of made the announcement um, that we were transitioning into a virtual event. Julian, can you correct me if I'm wrong, but did you like go through the same thoughts, but then decided that it wasn't the best thing or the right thing for the community and the organizers for one of your events? It was pretty much uh, the same for us. We already had like tickets sold. We had a venue. We we had the CFP resolved. So we were going to start like booking planes when uh, the news started to appear. We decided to hold until May to see if we were going to cancel the event or not. We were optimists. We thought that the situation was not going to be that long, but well, May started, the situation wasn't improving. So what we did was put a survey on Twitter and on the mailing list asking the community if they wanted to have a virtual event or rescheduled event for 2021. And what happened is that people pretty much decided to reschedule the event. So it was like a 50% vote. So half, half the people mm-hmm. wanted the virtual event, half the people wanted to reschedule. So it wasn't fair for the community. They want the experience. They want to share with people. They want to have like the full show. And at that moment, we didn't have that uh, pretty much a very good and clear idea how to bring a good experience to a virtual event. My mind changed after uh, attending Cascadia JS. So <laughs> it, 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 is, it, is, it is possible. I, I saw it. Thank you very much for, for showing how, how it can be. But back in May, we decided that the best for us was to reschedule and wait until yeah. we were able to do it like in person. Well, let's talk about some of that, that you said your mind changed, but I'm curious to hear more from, from Carter about like what stressed you out the most and like <laughs> what, what did change in, in the way you had to think about organizing this thing. I think you, you explained, I think it was a good analogy you explained of like you had the requirements and you kind of had to build this new thing and you just have yeah. to put your product manager right. hat on and, and decide like, can we ship this thing given these requirements and this time frame? What was different about this than, than putting on the, the in-person event, um, both like practically, but also like em- emotionally and, and I don't know, for your, your stress. Look, it, it was, it was completely, I want people to understand it was completely different. Like if you're awesome at putting on in-person events, like you will feel like some sort of, you know, toddler that can't even walk. Um, <laughs> here, look, the, here's the thing, like it was unbelievably stressful. Um, but, but I want to be clear, like the stress in, in a lot of ways was sort of um, self-inflicted because look, we, we could have put on a kind of lower grade virtual event that would have been much more straightforward. Right. But like I said, like we, we have a brand, like our community sort of expects, something from us that's special, right? Like, I think that's the word that I would use. It's like, it's special, it's differentiated. 
Um, and, and, and I think the thing is, me and the other organizers, like we, we were up for the challenge, right? And I, and I don't think that that's fair to like expect from like all people who organize all events, right? My wife, Carrie, and I, like we, we put on Cascaded Jazz as sort of like our family business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, that is not how the events work. A lot of, a lot of events are purely organized by, um, by volunteer members of the community, right? And, and in fact, I mean, that's how Cascadia was for the first, you know, five or six years. I sort of, I transitioned to working on it full time after I left Twilio. So in our case, because we had our sort of full ability to work on it full time, um, you know, we were sort of up for the challenge of trying to solve this puzzle, right? I think we all sort of realize now, like, it's not clear, like, when things are going to go back to whatever people think of as normal, right? Yeah. In fact, I'm actually certain that 2021 will not be anything like what people think normal is. Um, So from a maybe strategic perspective, um, I don't think it, it didn't feel like an option to just wait it out, right? It felt like this event has to learn how to be virtual maybe forever, right? So it, it, felt, it was a combination of like feeling like we, this is not just a momentary blip in time, like this is something long-term. And then also there was just sort of an appetite to like learn something new. And it was exciting. Stress isn't all bad, right? Like when yeah. you are challenging yourself, when you are setting this super high bar that you want to hit, like me and the other organizers, um, you know, we basically got on a call and, you know, I sort of put it out there and I said, hey, who's excited about putting on like the best and most interactive and immersive virtual event of 2020. And everybody was just super on board for that. Right. Um, so I think from, from that moment on um, it was hard and it was a lot of work, but there was just tremendous excitement and enthusiasm to see if we could do something that hadn't been done yet. So what about the organizers that, that helped you out with it? Were there instances where like you had one organizer helping you who was really great at, at their job for the in-person event, but kind of struggled figuring something out or, or helping you out being a good organizer for the, the virtual event? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say in terms of our like sort of volunteer organizer crew, I mean, everybody was just amazing. And I include like all the pivoting, right? So like in a, in a yeah. positive sense, um, Brendan uh, Niedermeyer, um, he's one of the core organizers of the Seattle JS meetup. Uh, and last year, uh, you know, he helped um, spin up sort of a support uh, network uh, for new speakers. Um, one of the things that we pride ourselves with Cascadia is that we don't just invite already well-known speakers to give talks. We sort of help discover new voices in our community, and we are proud of providing a platform for these new voices. Um, but Brent, last year, Brendan um, was sort of part of, he led the team that helped sort of get these new speakers ready to give a talk in front of, you know, 500 or 600 people, right? Um, and he did it again this year, but, you know, he, it, it was just all different, right? It was all about, like, how to, how to use tools on your laptop to sort of like pre-record your talk and set up your camera. And he coordinated, you know, shipping like cameras and microphones to speakers who didn't, who needed them. And it was just a completely different set of asks, but um, he handled it really, really well. Personally, from my perspective, there's a ton of things that I, that I did really poorly because I simply had no experience doing it, right? So like I had gotten really good at ordering swag. So Cascadia JS is famous for its hoodies. 
people love the hoodies. They're soft, you know, they, they're, they've got a great design on them. Uh, and normally, you know, we order 600 hoodies and we get them shipped to a conference venue and we hand them out in person, right? Uh, this year, we considered uh, hoodies to be table stakes. Like we would not consider putting on the conference if we couldn't send people hoodies. So we had to learn how to send this thing to like, you know, 600 individuals around the world. And I will totally say that like we, I, I like screwed it up on, on multiple dimensions. Um, and we had to like, and it was one of those things where like, you're having to fix the airplane while it's in the air. Like I had to send out emails saying, Hey, sorry, we didn't capture your address, your mailing address properly. Please go fill out this Google form. I mean, there were like multiple snafus in terms of like not capturing information correctly, asking people to do things twice, not explaining adequately enough. Uh, what the difference was between a standard hoodie and a fitted hoodie. Um, mm. There's just so many, so many problems um, that like, you know, that were just born out of my inexperience doing something like that. You have to fight through those things. And I think, and I just want to be clear, like one of the reasons that it feels worthwhile to fight through those things is that we just have a really wonderful community and on in in general, people are very very understanding when these things happen, and that's kind of a byproduct of the kind of community that we bring together. Kind of on the flip side, were there any things that surprised you that went better than they would have or they did in a physical in person conference? Uh, or there, like, were there any benefits for attendees? Maybe oh. maybe an obvious one is like people can attend from all yeah. over the world more mm-hmm. easily in a virtual conference. But, but yeah, what are some of those things that you found that were like, Oh, that's pretty cool. Like this is something we couldn't have, have done or couldn't have done as well in a physical conference. Yeah. I mean, it's honestly, it's a huge list. Right. And that, that's why I'm, I'm just so excited about the future of these kinds of conferences. I mean, like I'm, I'm already thinking about like the next virtual conference that we do. Right. Um, because I'm so excited about the fact that anybody in the world who wanted to attend Cascadia JS could attend it. Right. That was never, ever true in the past, you know, even with a scholarship program, like, you know, we just, we either, we didn't have the resources or people just, you know, couldn't fly, you know, from Australia to, to Portland or something, right? Like, so we, we were able to sort of bring our event to more people around the world. Um, and that was just amazing. Um, I think another benefit is that, you know, you can really be way more flexible with like how the timing like for your event happens, right? Like in a physical event, like, look, you know, you've got a venue for two days, like you've got to squeeze everything into those two days, right? And like, you've got really almost no flexibility to do more than that, right? Uh, but in a virtual event, you, you can have things happening leading up to the event. So we, you know, we hosted um, free meetups um, leading up to the event so that we could test out some of the technology that we were building but so that also people could check out like what we were about, right? They could almost like try before you buy, like come hang out at the meetup um, and sort of see what we are about, right? Um, so you're, you're able to put on these events like before the conference, you're able to put on events after the conference. You know, we had a bunch of awesome workshops that we scheduled, you know, days or even weeks um, following the conference, including including the one that um, you, you and Julian organized. Um, so I think uh, there's a ton of time flexibility that you get. And I think the last thing I just want to call out, you also have sort of multitasking, right? You know, like in some big physical venue, you know, if maybe a multi-track conference, you have to physically get up and walk from like, you know, ballroom A to ballroom B, or maybe even you have to walk across the street or something, right? 
Um, but in a virtual event, you know, you're a click away um, from going from a really cool talk that you liked to a workshop that you're interested in, right? People can shift around in this super efficient way that I think is really powerful. Um, and then I guess, I sorry, and then I'll say one more thing. And then no, accessibility, right? Like at a physical venue, you have to be so thoughtful about accessibility um, from a physical perspective. Um, just like, you know, things like stairs can be a problem, right? Um, but in a virtual event, you still have accessibility problems, but they're different. You know, they're like technology accessibility. They're not like the physical ability of somebody to be somewhere, right? So long as they have a browser and an internet connection, they can be there. And that's just, it's just really powerful. One of the things, so I love the chat that was going on. Uh, or the ability to chat maybe during right. a talk. Maybe maybe that's rude to the speaker, but I actually kind of liked the ability to be chatting with the audience in a way that's not disruptive to the speaker. Or- no, Chris, Chris, the speakers were in the chat <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> right. Because remember, we um, looked to, you know, it, I know, I don't know if people think this is deceptive or not, but like we had pre-recorded talks that were 20 minutes mm-hmm. long that were followed by a live Q&A, Right. So you would have speakers in the chat as their talks were playing and they would <laughs> they would be interacting with people like as they were giving the talks. It was kind of cool. I think that format is perfect. I personally love uh, like the live coding or live streaming format where you can interact with the person that is like giving you content. Sometimes with like obviously conference talks, it's difficult to do it live. But if you had that space to interact like on the Q&A and interact with the other people at the conference through the chat, I think that's very, very good. And yeah. it's w- way less rude than you talking to your friend at the conference, like in- really interrupting. So An- Another thing, just while we're talking about the chat, um, the, the, the emote widget um, that, uh, that, that you all built, um, people absolutely loved it. Um, and and for, so for folks listening to this podcast, like, the, you'd have the talk playing in a little video window and there was a widget right underneath the talk where you could um, either clap or heart or, you know, there were like a, a bunch of different little emotions that you could click on. And when you clicked on them, there was this cool visual effect on the screen that would be replicated to everybody else that was watching the talk. Um, and there was, a, there was an optional sound effect that you could turn on or off. They loved it. I mean, if you go to Twitter and you search for Cascadia.js, you just see all these people screenshotting like the end of a talk and this cascade of claps and, and hearts um, coming from the people who are, who are watching that talk. This might sound surprising, like, but I, I knew from the beginning that if we couldn't build this feature, I didn't want to do the event. <laughs> wow. I'm not kidding. This was the, look, w- there is something unbelievably like primal and human about like clapping and expressing appreciation when you are a member of an audience. I just think about you know, a, a play that you've been to or think about a movie that you watched and then the, the closing credits of like your favorite movie and how everyone just starts clapping and cheering, right? Like it's, it's an emotion and it's a way for a member, for members of the audience to be part of the event and not just be like these passive viewers, right? Um, and I just, I just knew that if we couldn't build it, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put on the event because then you are just sort of watching like YouTube. Um, yeah. And that's just not, that's not what Cascadia is. And that emotion was also contagious because you saw like the bursts of people reacting with the smiley faces yes. and plus one. So that was very, very beautiful. So let's finish up. What was your, let's just finish with like, what was your favorite thing about the event um, that was kind of unexpected um, and your, your experience either prepping for it or, or actually day of or days of the event? 
I think for me, honestly, like the thing that was the most surprising was the the feedback that we got and just how uniformly positive it was. I mean, honestly, like I was absolutely terrified that people were going to not be very impressed by what we had done, who they wouldn't think that it was had been worth their time. Like I, I was really worried about the reaction that people were going to have. Um, and we, um, we, we send out a survey at the end of every conference. Um, it's one of the most important things that we do. Like we, mm. we beg people to fill out the <laughs> survey, whether the, whether the feedback is positive or negative, because we care so much about, about improving, right? Like you cannot just roll out the same conference every year, right? You have to learn and you have to get better. So we rolled out the survey um, and we got, you know, we got like, uh, you know, hundreds of people to respond um, and I couldn't believe it. People scored this year's Cascade AJS higher than any previous Cascade AJS. It just makes your head spin because you, as someone who's obviously been to all of them, right? Cause I organized them. Like you kind of get stuck thinking in like what you didn't do, you know, you didn't do this and you didn't do that. You didn't do this. Uh, and you lose sight of the fact that first of all, like, you know, most, most people who attended had never even been to a Cascadia, right? I think as organizers, you you lose sight of that. Like at least half of your attendees are new attendees, right? But then the second thing is people were just really surprised and delighted by what we had put together. Um, and it really came through. It came through in the talks. It came through in the social events. And, and for me, that was just really surprising. Like I, before the conference had started, I would have said like, hey, I think we did a pretty good job and I'm really proud of the effort. Um, and after reading the feedback, I'm legitimately surprised that we created something that has now made me feel like, wow, this is just, the, this is not like a one-off. This is now the blueprint, right? Um, like going forward, even if we get to a place where people can gather, there will always and forever be a virtual, like a, a, a non-trivial, serious virtual component to Cascade AJS so that people from around the world can always participate in the event. Julian, what about you as an attendee slash uh, supporter, you know, slash sponsor. Yeah. What, what was your favorite thing about the event? Hmm. A lot of different things. Um, the first one, I think the logistics around the event was like pretty, pretty easy to navigate, like all the emails, how to use the ticket, where to find the links, the different platforms that people had available. So for me as an attendee it was very, very easy to navigate. I have attended other different virtual events when you are lost on a website and you don't know where to go. So at least in this case, I felt like accompanied by somebody that was like guiding me through, through the conference. And I loved like the different, uh, like virtual spaces that the conference offered, like the different meeting, uh, tables that were for the like career and mentor fair the day before at the conference or the other virtual space where you were able to hang out with other people and even watch the talks from that uh, virtual space. So for me, that was like really, really mind blowing. Yeah, we didn't even have uh, a chance to kind of get into all the tooling and the tools that that you used <laughs> for this, Carter, like Rambly and, and those other things. But um, future, vlog, future podcast. <laughs> yeah, maybe exactly. We need to do episode two or part two or something like that. But <laughs> Before we finish up, Carter, is there anything else you'd like to add or share or any wisdom you want like to impart upon hopefully some event organizers will are listening to this, but but also plenty of people who uh, are developers who might attend um, virtual events uh, and maybe in-person or hybrid events in the future? 
Yeah. Well, look, if you're if you're the kind of person who likes to go to conferences, like, you know, you you don't have much of a choice. Like you're going you're going to attend virtual events for a while and then hopefully hybrid events later. I think to fellow organizers, um, you know, look, it's it's scary, right? Or it feels scary. Um, and there are a lot of like tools and platforms out there that try to offer a you know one size fits all, you know, way for you to do, you know, kind of put these experiences together. Um, but I, I guess I guess ultimately I would just say like like you can do it right. We we had a lot of doubt and we were we were worried that we weren't going to be able to create a wonderful experience. But I think I think you know ultimately it's not just the end result um, that people care about. It's how your effort and your empathy um, come through in what you do, right? So this the solution isn't like to use X tool or X platform. The solution is to like you know put put in the time and put in the effort to understand your community and to understand what tools are available and to do your best. Um, and I, th- I think if you do that, um, people really recognize that. Um, uh, and th- and that, that's certainly how I felt. We're not done, you know, like we've, we've been um, posting um, all of the videos for Cascadia JS on our website. Um, so for people who couldn't attend, they can just go to 2020.cascadiajs.com um, and eventually we will have all of our videos up. Uh, and you know, we're, we're planning ahead. You know, I think, I think we're going to do another purely virtual event, um, in early 2021. And we're looking forward to potentially our first hybrid event, um, in October of 2021. So, uh, so, you know, folks, uh, folks that are interested in in what we're doing. Oh, and I think the the last thing I just wanted to say, like, um, I've been, I've been meaning to do it and I'm, I'm sorry that I, uh, I haven't done it sooner, but I'm going to, I'm going to write this up. I'm going to write up a blog post that walks through um, a lot of the decisions that we made and a lot of the tools, platforms, and vendors that we used. Um, so we'll be posting that on the Cascade JS site soon. So stay tuned for that. Cool. Yeah, we can link to that from the, the show notes too. But thank you for joining us on Codish. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. See ya. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.